Hello everyone and welcome to episode 291 of the Ask the Coach show where King Skills helps you improve your table tennis. Today we are looking at the last of our building blocks which is psychology. I'm Jeff Plum and as always I'm joined by super coach Alois Rosario. Welcome Alois. And thank you, Jeffrey, and uh, welcome to all the listeners. Absolutely, and uh, psychology, it's a big area, Alois, and um, it is an important building block of table tennis. Uh, it certainly is, and it's it's one that's often overlooked, and I suppose because, you know, we, we focus so much on um, the technical side and the tactical side, um, that sometimes we just do forget that psychological side, but yeah, we'll discuss that a little bit later. Absolutely. Um, but first up, Alois, we want to we want to return to the on this day segment. Now, last week I feel like you let the audience down when you you got T Ball Clamper's birthday wrong. Can you redeem yourself this week? Yeah, of course, of course. I was just ke- keeping everyone on their toes last week, but um, <laughs> uh, this week we have the birthday of Dmitry Ovcharov. And so he was born on the 2nd of September, so a few days ago, in 1988. How, how old does that make him, Jeffrey? Uh, 29. 29. Hey, there you go. 30 next year. So actually born in the Ukraine, but uh, but now obviously representing Germany. Um, and his father, Mikhail, was a, uh, was a table tennis champion as well. So uh, he was a Soviet champion in 1982. Is that right? I did not know that. Yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah. So Dimi um, is, I mean, he's one of the greats of the current current, uh, crop of table tennis players. Um, He has won four Olympic medals. You wouldn't think that, would you? Like that sort of has gone under the radar a little bit. The fact that he's won four Olympic medals. He's won... um, a silver in the teams in 2008 in Beijing, um, won two other bronze medals in the teams events in 2012 and 2016. But probably the one that he would cherish most is the bronze in the singles in uh, 2012 in London. So, uh, so it's a pretty impressive record, really. You know, four Olympic medals um, from a guy who's you know hasn't really you know won the big ones, but uh, that's it's it's. Still, you know, it's not a bad, not a bad effort. I'd say, you know, I, I wouldn't turn that sort of record down. <laughs> no, no, it's a very impressive career. Um, and you know, I guess time goes pretty quickly, doesn't it? Like you see, he's, he won a lot of Olympic medals, and he's twenty nine now. He's not exactly a spring chicken anymore. Yeah, that's right. So what'll he be at twenty uh, twenty? He'll be, you know, thirty two or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that that's probably you know one of his last opportunities, I'd say. You know, and, and especially in the teams event, we're, we're talking um, bowl being a, a big part of that team, and you know how long will uh, Timo keep playing? Um, who yeah. knows? Yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, but uh, Dimi Ovcharov, twenty nine years old, just the other day. Yes, happy birthday, Ovcharov. Yes. All right, Alois, that moves us on to the joke of the week. It's the one that I always look forward to. <laughs> okay, now, listeners and Alois, what do you call a snake that is exactly 3.14 metres long? Um, scary? <laughs> yes, but, but its technical name is a python. <laughs> it's great. 
A python. Python. I don't get it. <laughs> That's because you don't know anything about maths, Alois. Three point. Ah, oh, 3.14. Oh, I... It's so clever, yeah. isn't it? Just, it uh, is. I mean, it it's, is, got, but... it's got all the good ingredients or all the essential ingredients of a good joke. Yeah, but... Apart from the funniness. But... <laughs> Exactly, but but I always thought that pi wasn't exactly three point one four. I thought it was three point one four one five nine two six five three five nine. Um, Jeff. <laughs> well, it's approximately that. Yes. Right. So, so okay. yeah, can we that, do the joke again? That's what why the snake is approximately three point one four meters long. <laughs> We've ruined it. All the maths people out there are going. No, that's just not right. It's not even. It's not funny, and it's not right because you said it, exactly. Exactly. It's not right. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not exactly three point one four meters long. <laughs> it's approximately. Okay. Good. All right. All right. So yeah. So so I know all your listeners are going to go out and tell your friends because it was such a funny one. So when you do that, make sure you say, "What do you call a snake that is approximately three point one four meters long?" Okay. Then it's All really right. funny. That's yeah, I guess that's funny now. <laughs> okay, good one. All right. Now let's move on to the tip of the week. What are we talking about here, Alloy? Okay, so yeah, so we touched on it earlier, but the tip of the week this week is starting to talk about the psychological part of the game. So we have been through the building blocks. You know, we've talked about um uh, building your strokes and linking them and all those sorts of things. But now we come up to the seventh building block, which is psychology. And today we're going to talk about the pre-point routine. So firstly, what is a pre-point routine? Well, basically all it is is something that you're going to do um, regularly in routinely um, before each point. So if you watch the best players in the world, you'll see that they – have their own pre-point routines, you know. So so Samsonov bounces the ball on the table a couple of times. He wipes his hand. He then, um, you know, puts the ball in his hand and throws it up before he serves. So that's his little pre-point routine. He also does a little bit of a jogging on the spot. Um, it's, it's good to develop your own pre-point routine because it just gets your body familiar with, with what you're doing. So especially in a stressful situation, our bodies like to, to feel comfortable and you get that comfort by doing something that you know really well. So that pre-point routine becomes that little comfort blanket that you, uh, that you put on before each point by just going through that simple routine. And your routine can be whatever it is. You know, the um, it can be, um, you know, walking up and touching the table that some players do. It can be jogging up and down on the spot. It can be bouncing the ball three times, um, whatever it is. But just think about developing a routine that uh, you can rely on and use uh, in all situations. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be elaborate, does it? It can be quite simple and it, and it kind of needs to be quick because you don't have a lot of time between points. Yeah, that's right. It, it needs to be simple, um, you know, uh, some players do get into, you know, real routines and, you know, touching their, their hair and their shirt and their, their bat and their, then go up to the table and wipe their feet and, you know, do all sorts of things. Um, it's best to just have a nice, simple routine, one or two things that you do just to get yourself comfortable. If you haven't seen um, Samsonov uh, 
or, or observed him with his pre-point routine, it, it'd be good to just have a look at uh, at what he does because it's um, it's quite it's quite simple and and um, it's something that you could try uh, to start off with as well. I, I suppose for those of you that watch tennis, there's it probably becomes a bit more obvious in tennis because there's more time. You know that it's the number of times the players bounce the ball before they before they serve. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, one thing I like about the pre-point routine alloys is it's kind of a a very easy way to get involved in sports psychology. Like a lot of people don't know where to start. It's such a big topic. But this is just something concrete that you can do um, to, to get started with the journey into sports psychology. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that, give, give it a go. Um, and, and I suppose go back and just have a think about what you actually do before a point and then just think about how can you um, formalise that, I suppose, or make that, make that more of a routine rather than something that just happens every now and then. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so I guess, Alois, that based on this conversation, I think I know what the drill of the week is. You got it. So develop a pre-point routine during your training. So, so during your training, now what I want you to do is, even if you're doing a uh, just a, a footwork drill or a or a movement drill or whatever it is, before each point, I want you to just go through your pre-point routine. Um, it becomes, it can be quite tiring or it can be quite you know it takes a bit of time to do so you don't have to do it for a long time initially just do it for a minute or two um, before each point and just see how it how it feels how it makes you feel see whether it calms you down see whether it gets you into a good um, headspace to to play each point or or to train each point well awesome all right so yeah people um it is a great way as we said to get involved with sports psychology it's something that's uh really actionable um so yeah get out there and as Alice said practice this during your training and then uh just experience what it's like awesome all right Alice, that moves us on to the tournament wrap what's happening in the world of the ittf yeah, it's a little bit quiet at the moment, but um, the Austrian Open is coming up later this month on the 19th of September. Um, just having a look at the players list. So the big big guns from China aren't there again. So it's, it is a platinum uh, tour event, but the top seed in the men's singles is uh, Wong Chun-Tin from Hong Kong. Uh, then there's Koki Niwa from Japan. Fang Bo is there from China. He's the number three seed. Simone Gorzi, Marcus Freitas, Kenta is there. So, um, yeah, so re- good, really good high level, um, but just not the top few Chinese. And in the women's, um, there's uh, Chen Meng is there, Mu um, Hirano, Kazumi Ishikawa. Um, so, yeah, again, good depth uh, with the Japanese, you know, really being represented strongly as usual. Um, yeah, really good to see that the Japanese players there, um, you know, once again in, in all their in all their strength. So let, there's 33 Japanese players um, playing at the Austrian Open. It's yeah. huge, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge number and it's impressive to see, yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, the more the uh, Pro Tour gets supported by the countries, the bigger and better it becomes. So, yeah, it's good to see. Uh, interestingly there, Fang Bo, you know, down to the third seed after 
making the uh, final of the World Individual Championships a few years back. Um, yeah, so he's, he's number le- number 11 in the world at the moment. And that's, you know, really due to probably not playing as much and not having as as many um, outings um, on the world world tour. So, um, yeah, down, down to number 11. There you go. Excellent. And um, probably a reasonable sort of bet if uh, if you're getting any sort of odds on uh, Fangbo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not that we um, uh, encourage betting. Yes. And speaking of the World Championships, Alois, there was an announcement ma- uh, made recently. Yeah. So the, uh, the the World Teams Championships next year has been announced for uh, England in February. So, uh, and I think that's, you know, a little bit on the back of the great performance by the English men's team last time up. Um, so, uh, yeah, re- re- nice to see uh, nice to see England hosting um, a major table tennis event. Obviously, they, they did the, um, the Olympics in 2012, but they haven't really had anything major there for a, a little while. So, uh, so it'll be good to see table tennis back to the home of table tennis, where table tennis was invented. Um, so that's in the World Teams Championships next year, February next year. Yes, very exciting. And that will come around quickly, I imagine. Um, it, time seems to be flying. Probably in about five months. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> awesome. All right, Alice, well, let's get on to some questions. Um, first up is one from Mary, who says, I'm a senior in my 60s and have been taking table tennis lessons for almost four years now, and she's finally getting the hang of the loop, and uh, the strokes, her strokes are good. But when it comes to real games, playing against untrained players, I just cannot get, cannot get my shots out. It's so they're like, she's I'm in an odd position, uh, or I can't read the spin. So she wants to know, how can she direct her training to help her get more points in a game? She says, it's so embarrassing to be beaten by untrained people. But again, I'm a senior lady against senior men, and sometimes I get my strokes in, but at times I play too light. Um, so it's quite discouraging to her. And as she said, of course, her eyes aren't as good as they used to be, so it's hard to follow the ball sometimes. So yeah. she, she wants to know, is it time to quit training? Yeah, well, the, the, the first answer is Mary, no. It's definitely not time to quit training, but it's probably time to think about um, what you're doing with your training. So it's really great that you, you're learning the strokes and learning technique. That's that's important. And now it's a matter of um, linking linking those strokes together. So if um, if you go into our strokes and technique ses- uh, section on the website, you'll find the building blocks of table tennis there. Um, so the first stro- first thing that we talk about is the basic strokes, which is what you're really doing. But the, the next thing is linking the strokes together and then randomizing that linking. So, so that then you're starting to get more of a game type um, situation. That's really important as you're starting to develop your game and then trying to play these different styles and different players. Um, it, it, it'll it'll come, Mary, but it's just a matter of, you know, just going through those building blocks, just starting to randomise your, your training a little bit more as far as where the ball's coming to. Yeah, so do you um, have like a simple example that Mary could start off with? Yeah, so if you're if you're practicing your forehand, for example, um, do some forehands, and you know you're getting that nice technique on your forehand. But then get your partner to 
hit the ball to your backhand sometimes. So maybe you know, 10% or 20% of the time they can hit the ball into your backhand area. So now you have to play your forehand, but you're still thinking about the ball coming to the other side. That's, that's important because in a game situation, you don't know where the ball's coming until your opponents hit the ball. If you know where the ball's coming uh, beforehand, you can get yourself set. You, you're almost turning yourself too much to your forehand side, um, and it's an unrealistic uh, practice of a stroke. So by having that little bit of randomization, you're then going to um, get a little bit closer to what a game is going to look like for you. Yeah, and I guess it's important to get the balance right because – you need to make sure you've got the strokes right first. So you do need some kind of drilling of the strokes, but then it is important to move on to that next step, isn't it? And and randomise the the stroke, uh, randomise yeah. the placement. Yeah, exactly. And especially if it, at the moment now you're feeling that okay, you're losing to players that don't have good technique. Don't worry about it too much. You you will start to adapt to all of that sort of thing as well. Yeah, that sounds good. Now, just one other thing on that, Alice. I find that sometimes. In training, when you do put this randomising element in, people get a bit discouraged because they do find it harder, um, which is exactly what they find in a game. But it really is an important step because even though you're going to find it harder in training when you don't know where the ball's going, that practice is really going to help you in the game. So you'll find it harder in training, but then you'll find it easier in the matches. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point, Jeff. Um, and, And it's something that, yeah, a lot of players shy away from because of that reason because they they don't feel comfortable in training when the ball is coming more randomly yeah yeah but uh but it really really does help so mary give that a go definitely don't quit training um just try introducing this new concept of uh linking your strokes together and randomizing where the ball's going and good luck mary all righty next up is a question from roy and roy said you both speak quite a lot about bats and spin but what contribution is there from a table, especially ones in athletic stadiums that don't even get dusted, let alone serviced? How can I overcome the resulting problems? Do I go elsewhere to play? What do you think about that question from Roy, Alois? Yeah, Roy, um, I think there's a couple of things. You know, one, the, the first thing is to become a bit more adaptable, and that's something that um, that's important for us as table tennis players. So you're right. You know, we do talk a lot about, oh, we, you know, what happens if you change your rubber or change your bat or change your blade or the, you're using a different ball. The table has a, a significant influence as well. You know, some bounce a little bit lower, some higher, some faster, some slower, all those sorts of things. But being able to adapt will allow you to change um, in that situation. So in in your training um, situation, don't worry too much if you're using different table tennis ball or you're you're playing on different tables. Just allow your body to adapt to the different speed. Don't try and do too much, I suppose, um, with uh, you know and 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 getting stressed about the fact that the ball bounces a little bit higher or lower. You often find with a table, if you play on it for about half an hour you will adapt pretty naturally anyway. So, you know, if you if you are playing in these different halls, just get there a bit earlier. If you're playing matches on there, um, just get there a bit earlier, have a good hit up, and by the end of the night, you won't know the difference at all. Yeah, yeah, good point. And I really do think it's like you said, Alois, it's a bit of a mindset um, 
if you go in there thinking, oh, this is an opportunity for me to practice my adaptability or practice with some different conditions, then you're kind of open to learning. Whereas if you go in there thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible because this table doesn't bounce, um, then you're already in a negative sort of mindset. So I think try and be positive, try and see it as an opportunity, and that will help you develop um, and become more adaptable. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and and a lot of people do stress a lot, a lot about their rackets, you know. Well, should I use, um, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever, Mark V rubber or should I use Shriver or should I use um, Donic or this or that? You know what? The, the differences in the conditions, the temperature, the tables, the flooring, the lighting actually have more um, significance on the outcome um, in, a, in a match situation. So, it, yes, I mean, it's good to get something that you uh, are comfortable with, but then just use it, you know, and there's there's really not a lot of difference between a lot of those rubbers and blades and all that sort of thing. So think about more, okay, how am I going to adapt, okay? If my rubber, and you know, even, even with a Mark V rubber, on a cold day, it's not going to bounce anywhere near as much as on a hot day. So, so how do you adapt to that? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it is important that you know when your rubbers do wear out and lose their grip, that you replace them. But if you found a rubber that you like, just you know get that one again. And as Aloy said, be adaptable. Awesome. All right. Hopefully uh, that helps you out, Roy. Next up is a question from Azar, who wants to know, have you faced this problem too? He says, over the course of regular practice, I seem to have developed corns and hardened skin at three places on my hand, where the skin of my thumb meets the base of the forehand rubber on its edge, just below my little finger and ring finger on my palm. And he says, it's probably due to holding the bat too tightly. Is this a common occurrence and are there ways around it? Or is it merely an occupational telltale one has to learn to live with? Yeah, well, it's um, it's just something you have to li- learn to live with, unfortunately, Azar. Um, it's sort of like a battle scar, you know? Like it's, yeah, it's good. You know, the bigger the corn, the more you've trained. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, most players will get um, that corn or that little bit of um, uh, hardened skin, usually, you know, near the bottom of the ring finger and little finger there um, or, you know, in some other places. I suppose the other thing you can think about is just holding the bat a little bit lighter um, in your hand. But, um, yeah, no, they're just they're just um, hazards of the job, I suppose, because a, a, a hand or the skin there wasn't meant to, you know, have something in your hand so, uh, so regularly and rubbing there regularly. So it just will... Um, naturally build up some more skin there as a protection. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I guess, yeah, and the more you do it, the more you just get used to it, I guess. Um, yeah, it's uh, just part of the process. <laughs> as <I>. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up is a question from Aaron, who wants to know something about a long-handled racket, Alois. He said he was watching the Chinese amateur gameplay and came across a match, and he noticed one of the players using a very long handle on his blade and he wanted to know whether it was legal and within the rules of the game. And if it was legal, why is he choosing to use this long handle? And he noticed he was a defensive player and doesn't really attack at all and mostly uses a tomahawk serve. And um, yeah. he felt like the style only works because their level is not high and he reckons a de- uh, at a higher level it would have beaten him more easily. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on this? Yeah, it's um, 
it's it's interesting to to actually have a look at the um the link that Aaron's put on there of the video. Um, so the, this guy's yeah, using so, hand- oh, Sorry, yeah, so I'll put that in the show notes. So everyone go to pingskills.com and uh, click on the blogs and the Ask the Coach podcast. And when you find this episode, we'll have some links to this YouTube video so you can check it out. Yep, sorry, Alice, go on. That's all right. Yeah, so the, the handle's about, I suppose it's about 30 centimetres long, you know, a foot long or something. Um, so, or even or even longer, perhaps. Um, so it's a pretty long handle. Um, firstly, is it legal? Yes, it is. So it doesn't matter what... Um, the shape of your racket is. You can have any shape racket. You can have any length or size of racket that you want. So you are allowed to use a long handle. I mean, the only advantage is if you're a defender is when that ball does go out really wide to be able to to extend the handle or, you know, get your bat uh, hand right down the the end of the handle so you've got better reach. But I I don't know. Like, there, I don't think there's a great advantage there. Um, you know, I mean, how often are you just not reaching the ball, and how effective is that shot going to be anyway? When you've got the the bat right in the end of the handle, um, and it does look a little bit unwieldy as well. You know, because that that long handle will get in the way um, in some way as well. And there's there's a bit of as you said, a bit of unnecessary weight there too. So it's not something I would recommend. And and again, have a look at have a look at the bulk of people to start off with. You know, um, if there were a lot of players or a lot of defenders using a long handle, then you know, then yes, definitely entertain it. I mean, entertain it anyway. Give it a try, but it's not something that I'd recommend to most players. Yeah, it, it, to me it seems like just you're going to lose more control than you're going to gain extra reach. Um, and as you said, yeah, if if it was really good, I think you'd start to see more players use it. But yeah, it's always good to um, be on the lookout for new things and new ways of doing stuff. So um, good to see you focusing on that, Aaron. Awesome, Alois. Well, that wraps up show 291. It was a good one, talking about uh, psychology of table tennis, important aspect of the game, and then obviously some really good questions there. So uh, thanks, everyone, for sending the questions in. You can always send your questions in to us uh, via the Ping Skills website on the Ask the Coach show, and we'll choose some interesting ones for the show. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Alois. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thanks, uh, everyone, for asking those questions. We've been getting a lot of questions recently, so, um, yeah, good to see. Excellent. All right, thanks, guys, and we will catch you shortly. Bye.